Hi, my name is Justina. The Old Testament reading is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 23 through 29. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he will give you the early rain as a sign of righteousness. He will pour down abundant rain for you, the early and the late rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, and the devouring locust have eaten, my great army which I sent against you. You will eat abundantly and be satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has done wonders for you, and my people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. No other exists. Never again will my people be put to shame. After that, I will pour out my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will also pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Emily, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides within you and will be, with, be in you. The gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Please remain standing just for a moment, if you would. Heavenly Father, you don't need an invitation into this place, New Life Downtown. We are your body. This is your church, your home, but we invite you still. Would you come? Would we be able to see you? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see you? Would you open the ears of our hearts so that we might hear you? And would you soften our hearts entirely this morning, God, that we might feel and experience you in this place? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. Like Evan said, my name is Joey Jimenez. I'm one of the associate pastors here at New Life Downtown. Glenn is traveling, so the privilege is mine this Sunday to open the scriptures for us. Now, before we get started, whether you're introverted or extroverted, I would imagine that every single one of us takes at least a little bit of joy, finds a little bit of comfort knowing that your story is a part of, of a much bigger story. Whether you're introverted 
Whether you're extroverted, I think there is some measure of comfort that each one of us can find knowing that our story, your story, matters. And that your story is a part of a much larger story. All of my life, I have loved being a part of a team. I've played individual sports my entire childhood, but it was the team sports. I was playing soccer. It was days playing basketball. It was was days playing youth baseball that I just absolutely loved. Those were some of my fondest memories growing up, was being on a team, having something required of me, having something that I could participate and give back to. Skip forward. May of 2000 was a big year for me. May of 2000, I graduated from Tom C. Clark High School, San Antonio, Texas. Go Cougars. There's at least one other Cougar here this morning. (laughs) And I was off in May. I was off to college. And as you can imagine, that was an exciting time for me. I left the great state of Texas, the promised land. I thought at some point I might make it back. But I left Texas to go to school in California. I was invited. I got to participate. I went to Pepperdine University, and I was invited to play on the men's water polo team. Little known fact about your pastor. I was invited to play D1 water polo at Pepperdine University. I ended up playing for three years, but I left in May of 2000 and made my way to California. Now, when I graduated, some of you who know water polo have an image of your head of what water polo players look like. You may have seen a game if you're up at 2 a.m. during the Olympics, because that's the only time they show it. You may have seen a game and thought, these guys are ginormous, and you're right. I graduated high school, and I was a staggering, a staggering 145 pounds soaking wet. (laughs) And I showed up at Pepperdine University, and the average weight of the guys on the Pepperdine men's water polo team was about 205, 210. And here's Joey, coming in hot. I showed up at Pepperdine, and I'll never forget going, asking myself, being so excited to be a part of this team. Pepperdine still has, and at that time had one of the best programs in the nation for men's water polo, which is why I went to California, along with the beach. But I remember going, showing up, and seeing, here's the introduction. You walk into the locker room, you meet the coach, you meet these athletes. Many of these athletes have gone on post-college to play professionally. A lot of them have played on the Olympic teams. In fact, the coach who was there when I was at Pepperdine has coached for the past two goes. He's been the men's uh, men's coach for the Olympic water polo team. So I'm stepping into this program that has a lot of legacy history and is really established. And I just remember walking in the locker room going for the first time, good Lord, why am I here? What happened? These guys were some of my best friends, and I just remember going, knowing when I was going in there that, sure, I didn't look like, and on paper, black and white, because that's the beauty of playing college sports, is they, actually, every school, every team will issue, like, a stats report on the team. And on black and white, it's very easy to see how insignificant I was compared to the rest of these guys who were large human beings. And again, 145 pounds soaking wet, I was by far the shortest and the smallest guy on the team. But I knew when I was invited to go, I knew when I was asked to consider playing at Pepperdine, I knew that I had a specific role. And it wasn't just to survive. (laughs) I, I knew that that was my hope. I knew that I had a job. I knew that I had an assignment. And the perk of being the small guy, some of you guys know this, perk of being the shorter guy, the skinnier guy, Maybe I didn't have all that muscle, but the perk of being a small guy was that I was incredibly fast. 
I was incredibly fast. I was a good swimmer, but I also had an arm. I could also shoot. I could also put the ball where it needed to be in the net. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with water polo, it's like a mix between basketball and soccer, except you're treading water for about 45 minutes. I absolutely loved it. I thrived in it. Going into my three years of playing at Pepperdine, I knew that one of the joys of getting to be a part of this big team, this program, was that I wasn't obsolete, that I wasn't insignificant, that even though the team uniform, so they would give you like a running jacket and stuff like that, a robe, that even though the small sizes that they bought were still two sizes too big for me, I knew that I still played, that I brought value to that team. That's why I was asked. That's why I was invited. I knew that I played a role. And we're going to talk about that this morning. You'll notice from our readings that we are going to be talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. And I know that the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit can be confusing for us as a church, for us as believers. This morning, we're, we're not going to talk about what do the gifts actually look like, how do they play out, but what I do want to ask, the two questions I do want to bring up as we start, are what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean? What's the purpose? What does it mean to be spiritual? And what is the purpose, singular, what is the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. If you would, go ahead and flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's going to be our text this morning. We're going to start in verse, verse 4. I'm going to read just a few verses and then I'll stop. But again, I want to keep these questions at the forefront of our minds this morning as we get started. What does it mean to be spiritual? What's the role? What's the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit? This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says in verse 4, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. I want you to underline verse 7. He says to each, some of your translations say to everyone, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these things, you can underline verse 11 to all of these things, Paul says, are empowered by the one and the same Spirit. And he apportions, he gives to each one individually as he sees fit. Church, you don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to be an MDiv student to realize there's a lot of repetition happening here. Seven times Paul references the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. The gift was given by the same Spirit, through the same Spirit, the same Spirit, the same Spirit. Now what you, now what you do need to know 
is that Paul's not doing that on accident. That repetition in the Bible, repetition is the biblical form of underlining. Try is, Paul, excuse me, is trying to make a point for the church in Corinth. And what the point that Paul is trying to make is this. There is one spirit who empowers a multitude of gifts. I'll say that again. There is one spirit that empowers a multitude of gifts. Now, to understand why Paul is writing that to the church in Corinth, it's important that we do a little homework. We have to understand a little bit about this church. And believe it or not, I think when we take a good look at the church in Corinth, it's easy to see that there are some similarities between the church today, even, even this church, even New Life Downtown. So Corinth was a Roman colony in Greece. And Corinth was, an, was a hub. They would promote this. Next to Athens, this was one of the thriving cities across Greece. And Corinth was a very wealthy and a very affluent community. And the church of Christ in Corinth was growing exponentially. And they met in houses a lot like our meal groups, led by individuals who shared a common passion for proclaiming and communicating the word of God. And the church in Corinth was, was growing it was a, and we know this, it was growing according to how God caused it to grow. Now, the church in Corinth wasn't without its problems, just like any community, any, just like our church. There are certain nuances to church. And the church in Corinth had a couple of things that were happening in and around Corinth. And the first being that it was being a hub, a lot of wealthy and affluent people, individuals living there. It was also the center, was one part, it was also the center for Greek thought, one of, next only to Athens. But Greek philosophy, largely influenced by a guy named Plato, whose name I'm sure you've all heard, whose thought actually led, was the forerunner for what we would call modern-day Gnosticism, this idea, part of it being this idea that all matter, everything is inherently evil. And not only is there Greek thought that's influencing, existing around this growing, budding church, but there's also pagan and cultic pra practices that were happening. Corinth was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, largely Greeks, so very little experience with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And around Corinth, there were all sorts of cultic pagan practices at work that obviously had an influence on what the church was seeing and doing. It defined their culture. Just above the town of Corinth, there was, um, there was an altar, there was a tomb, uh, not, a, not a tomb, but there was an altar built to the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. Prostitution was rampant in this town. So that's the setting in which Paul is writing to. This is the people in Corinth, the church of God, the church of Christ in Corinth. This is their neighborhood, so to speak. And Paul is writing to this group of well-off, affluent, savvy is maybe the best way to put it to their culture and what's going on. And this is a chunk for chapter 12 as part of a ten, second half of 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. It's a large chunk where Paul is talking about worship. What does it mean to worship? How are we to worship? Who are we, who are we to be in and through worship? And so the problem in Corinth that Paul's specifically addressing here 
is this problem that theologians, this problem that scholars have diagnosed. It's a big word or it's a fancy word. They call it, they, they were suffering from or their problem was an over-realized eschatology. That's a tongue twister. But what it means is this. That the Corinthian problem was because they saw the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, because the, and all that manifestations means is made visible. Because they were seeing the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit made visible around them, the Corinthians began to think that they had become like the angels. That because they were seeing the manifestations, the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in them and in their body, in the church, they began to think that they were more spiritually mature than they were. And this played out in this way. That the list that Paul gives, the nine gifts of the Spirit in this chapter, that just like any one of us, that they would see certain gifts on display, that they would see certain gifts in front, those gifts that were most visible and they would place a premium. They would put those on an altar. They would put those on a pedestal. And they would worship those individuals. They would worship that individual gift. So that, as you can imagine, if you didn't have that gift, well, then your experience was lesser. If you didn't, if that gift wasn't being made manifest in your life, well, then your role in, this, in that church, your role in the church was going to be less significant. And as you can imagine, that led to divisions, which the, almost the entire first half of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing this idea of divisions within the church, and factionalism, where we're going to separate. We're going to separate these individual gifts, and we're going to try and quantify and qualify and break down these things and say, no, the Holy Spirit is this, or the Holy Spirit is this, whether it's tongues or healings, you name it. This is it. And, and if you live on that side, well, then you're not here and you're wrong. Again, the point that Paul is trying to make clear is there is one spirit, one, and that he empowers a multitude of gifts. There is one spirit, and he empowers a multitude of gifts. So then, the natural question, because we do the same thing, and if I'm entirely honest, I do the same thing. Where do I fit? I see so-and-so's gifts, and I see the Holy Spirit made, being made manifest in so-and-so's life, and, and it's not in mine, so does that mean that my experience of God and experience with the Holy Spirit is lesser? At sometimes, yes, I do believe that. Sometimes that is, that is what I have convinced myself, and that's so far from the truth. But if I'm being honest, I wrestle with that, and I would imagine that I'm not alone. Paul is saying again and again and again, there is one Spirit. And it is the one spirit who empowers a, multiple, a multitude of gifts. Then why the list? Then why list nine gifts? Here's, here's what I would say. Here's how I'm going to answer that question for us this morning. This is one of the lists that Paul gives to the churches that he's writing to, the churches that he found. This is one of those lists. There's a list in Romans. We see lists in Galatians. This list was not meant to be definitive, this list wasn't meant to be exhaustive. Rather, this list was meant to be considerable. And here's what I mean by that. That when we would begin to think about these gifts and consider the other gifts, the other ways that the Holy Spirit is made manifest, that we wouldn't think about the individual gift itself, but that our perspectives would be widened and not narrowed. 
that the variety of gifts was meant to enlarge our perspective. That's why we see a list of nine and other lists elsewhere. The variety of gifts that Paul lists here is meant to enlarge our perspective, cause us to think, you really are our, our perspective of God. You really are infinitely bigger and more robust and more wild than I could ever imagine. You really are. There are so many parts of your character that are so far beyond what I can comprehend. You really are that big. That's why I believe Paul begins to give lists. These were things that the Corinthians saw, but I really do think that the beauty of these, beauty of this list and the beauty of these gifts is that God wanted to enlarge our perspective, not narrow it. And so then Paul gives the answer to the question, what's the purpose? Why give the gifts then? If, what about beyond just widening our perspective? What am I supposed to do with these gifts? And I had you underline verse 7. Here's what Paul says. He answers the question right off the bat. He says, to each one is given, to everyone, some of your translations again say, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. To each one is given the manifestation, the visible expression of the Holy Spirit on your life and in your life for the sake of the common good. I think one of the difficulties when we think about gifts, we'll come back to this in a moment, is the moment you give somebody a gift, they begin to think that it's theirs. What Paul is trying to tell the church in Corinth here is that, yes, there are a multitude of gifts. What you're seeing isn't even the full list. It's not even the fullest expression. But the reason they exist is for others. Isn't it fitting that the one of whom we're told Christ did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many would have this in mind? That the reason I'm going to pour out, the reason I'm going to give, I'm going to bestow the very life, breath, fire, spirit that exists in me on you is for the sake of my church. Isn't that fitting? And in fact... When we start thinking about the variety of gifts, the diversity of gifts, I think we see the true, the fullest expression, the most real form of diversity, the real beauty of diversity is seen within that context of relationship. It's when it is outwardly focused. That's where we see the diversity, the variety of the Holy Spirit, the many faces of his personality on display is within the context of relationship. So what does unity without diversity look like? Because Paul is saying variety of gifts, many gifts, but one spirit. Many gifts, one spirit. Many services, many activities, but one spirit. He has diversity in one hand and unity in the other. Let's take a look. Let's read it 12 through 26. Paul says, for just as the body, he gives us an illustration right here, I should preface this, of what these gifts played out in community. He takes it from an individual level to a corporate level. Corporate is a fitting word because corpus means body. And Paul uses that illustration here. He says, for just as the one body, just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members 
Though they are many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. Church, this is good news. Verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made, I love this language, all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. How could I possibly belong to the body? Sometimes, if we're honest, I think that is our thought. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I, there's, no, there's no possible way I could belong to the body. That would not make it. That does not make it, Paul says, any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that does not, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body, Paul goes on, if the whole body looked the same, act the same, had the same function, if the whole body were an eye, well, then where would the sense of hearing be? I lost myself. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body. God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts and one body. Paul's giving us that picture again here of how the parts of the body are to interact. What does unity without diversity look like? The word I would offer you is uniformity. That unity without diversity, that if everything were an eye, the illustration that Paul uses is if everything were an ear, that we would see, we would have uniformity. There is a sharp division, a distinction that needs to be clear between what we're talking about in unity and the idea of uniformity. What Paul is saying is unity is actually the fullest expression, or, is, or excuse me, diversity is most fully on display within the context of unity. In fact, some of the greatest evils that this world has ever known, some of the greatest atrocities that mankind has ever seen or experienced or been put through have come under the guise of uniformity. Van Gogh, I should say this real quick, when Paul talks about being baptized into one spirit and made to drink of the same spirit, he says, and you hear this language elsewhere, here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, but Christ is all. When Paul uses that language, sometimes we think about, I know this to be true, that sometimes my experience has been, well, then if everyone's the same, or if, or if I'm a part of one thing, if everyone's special, then nobody is, is the thought that oftentimes pe- crosses our minds. Paul's not eliminating the distinction there. Believe it or not, those Jews who came to make a profession of faith, who came to know Christ, though they became Christ followers, guess what? They were still Jews. The unique attributes of their story now infused the larger story that they were a part. The same with slaves and free, men and women. That becoming a part of the body does not remove the distinction, but it does. Paul is not removing the, dis- the distinction 
But what Paul is doing is Paul is redefining the value. What I want to say is this. Van Gogh gives this illustration. He talks about the way colors on a canvas work together. I've always admired artists, folks who can look at a blank canvas and see the end product. Oftentimes I think about God creating in the Genesis story. I've always admired that in artists because I've always had a difficult time doing it. This is what Van Gogh says when he talks about colors and the individual identity of, of colors. He says that the impression a color makes is determined not just by the color it makes, not just by the color itself, but by the colors around it. Think about that for a second. Adjacent colors can either soften or they can enforce. Those of you who are artists, painters, sketchers, drawers know this. Another way to put it would be this. The identity of a color, the identity of a single color doesn't lie in the color itself, but it's only established in relationship. At the moment you have a red, a red marker, a red crown, or a red paintbrush, and you dip that, excuse me, and you dip that into red paint, and you make that mark, you draw, you sketch a line, you draw a line onto a white canvas, it's not just the red paint, but it is the red paint in relationship with the white contrast of the canvas itself. Does that make sense? And then you begin to add additional colors, the blues and the pinks. You go all Roy G. Biv. You get every color of the rainbow in on this canvas, and you have something beautiful coming together. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. I think Van Gogh gets it because he sees the masterpiece of something, of so many individual, distinct, diverse things coming together for the sake of one beautiful thing. In the message translation, I love this language because oftentimes, again, I do get stuck in that place of going, well, then if I'm a part of this, then really it's everybody else's gifts that need to be on display, not my own. Here's what the message says of verse 14. Paul says, I want you to think about how this makes you more significant. Your story. The ways that the Holy Spirit has been and is being made manifest in your life. The way that he is interacting with your story. I want you to think about the ways that that makes you more significant, not less. But, verses 18 through 20, but I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. Guilty. Guilty. At times I can think, oh, well, let's put y'all's gifts on display. They're much prettier. They're much more robust than my own. And then at times I'm guilty of the opposite of going, what? here are my gifts. Here's what I bring to the table. I want you to think about how this makes you more significant, the fact that the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. Not less significant, but. I don't want you to think, but, excuse me. I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, Paul says, which is very significant, for no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. And that's good news, church. That's good news. I've never, well, I should take that back. I said that this morning and I was thinking about it afterwards. I've met only a few people who don't enjoy gifts. 
More people that I come across at the prospect or at the idea of a gift get excited, right? I've met few people who don't enjoy gifts. Most people get excited about the idea of a gift. And really, anything that God bestows, the things that God is doing in and through are all gifts. Right now at our home, we're getting ready to celebrate our little girl's two-year birthday. She's going to be two on May 3rd. And we have family in town, Emily's mom and my parents are visiting, and there's a present sitting in our living room that belongs to Raina. That's our daughter. It's in a box that was shipped from Ohio, and this box has been sitting in our living room for about a week. And Raina walks by this box. On the side of this box, I'll tell you what it is, just don't ruin the secret. On the side of this box is a picture of the bake set that my, grand, that my parents, Raina's grandparents, are giving to Raina for her birthday present, and it is plastered right on the side, clearly visible. You can see what this present is. And Raina, for the past week, walks by this box on a given, on a given day at least 50 times. That's being conservative. She walks by this box, and she pays absolutely no attention to this box. It's just there. It just sits there. It's taking up space. It's in the living room. Maybe it's in her way when she's walking around with a stroller. It's just there. She could care less about this box. But we're celebrating early. We're going to celebrate tonight. But tonight, I can promise you with 100% certainty, I can tell you what will happen. The box will be wrapped by tonight because that's how we do things. And as soon as she sees that it's wrapped and she's told that, hey, Raina, this is for you, she, she does, two-year-olds don't need instruction on how to do that. She will rip into this box, she will open it, she will take out, and in a moment, she will have forgotten, this is sad, don't cry, she will have forgotten who gave it to her. In a moment, she will be thinking, she will not be thinking, oh my gosh, How great a variety of love and affection my grandparents have on me that they would bestow unto me this Betty Crocker cook set, that they would give to me this right here. She will not be thinking, what can I do with this cook set that would benefit others? What cupcakes might I bake that might be shared for the common good? She will not be thinking that. I do not think. It's because she's my daughter. I apologize in advance. What she will be thinking the moment she opens this present is, this is my cook set. Look at it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it grand? Yes. Raina, this cook set is phenomenal. You are indeed the luckiest woman on the planet. But let me ask you this. Whatever happens... This is, the, this is the story of a two-year-old. I'm 33 years old this year, and my story looks strikingly similar. What happens when the gift eclipses the motivation and the heart of the giver? What happens when the gift, the thing itself, the thing that was given, the thing that was bestowed if a bake set could be bestowed, what happens when the thing, the gift itself, eclipses the heart and the motivation of the giver? I would say the real value of a gift is defined by the giver, himself or herself. That the true, the real value of a gift is defined by he or she who gives it. What happens when the gift eclipses the heart 
motivation, the purposes, the hope of the giver is what Paul's talking about when he uses the language of self-importance. We begin to think our motivation shifts almost on, a, on the fly, not from how great and how wide and how high and how deep, how vast. Again, the purpose of the gifts is to enlarge our perspective. It shifts from that to what can this gift do for me? Oftentimes, not all the time. When the gift eclipses the heart and the motivation of the giver, that's where we end up in that place of how can I use, how will this gift be used? Whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's the gift of healing, all of those things exist and we can spend so much time talking about them. But again, the point is there is one spirit at work in them. And the problem becomes, again, when that gift, when the thing, just like the church in Corinth did, they put it on a pedestal and they worshiped the gift in the place of and against over the giver. Church, do we do that? You don't have to answer out loud. What does that look like? What might that look like here? What would that look like for us? Verse 11 brings us back and it tells us these are just a few Again, we're reminded these are just a few of the ways that the Holy Spirit is made manifest. This list of nine, these are just a few. It's not exhaustive. It's not definitive. It's not the total list. In fact, your minds can't comprehend, our minds can't comprehend how vast that list may actually be. But verse 11 reminds us that it's his work. He is the one who empowers. I want us to stop there for, for just a moment. Church, your story matters. I will never get tired of telling that to people. Your story matters. But it is he who, has, who, he who is at work in you. It's his work. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers. Verse 11, it's the work of the Spirit. And guess what? When we sit in that place and go, oh, but what about the, the, the manifestations I see on so-and-so's life and so-and-so's life? We get to take comfort in the fact that he gives according to how he wants. You want to pray for those gifts? Then pray for those gifts. As I'm giving you permission to pray for the gifts that you are seeing manifest in others' lives. However, and I think we should. However, I want us to pray. If you are to pray that, if you are to endeavor in that way, my hope, my encouragement would be to pray knowing that the very same, the one spirit who empowers all of them, that the very same spirit that lived and breathed inside of, that animated everything that we see Jesus doing and everything that we hear Jesus saying, that that very same spirit lives and breathes inside of you. And guess what? He doesn't need an education. The Holy Spirit does not need an education on how to be more of the Holy Spirit, on how to be any one of those nine things more. He just is perfectly all the time. And he lives and breathes inside of you. And he lives and breathes inside of you. And he lives and breathes inside of you, both of you, even though you're now one flesh. And he lives and breathes inside of each one of us. And church, that is good news. Amen? That the manifestations that we see in other people's lives, guess what? 
Holy Spirit's capable. He's the one behind it all, and you have him too. Lest we forget what happens when, we, when the gift, the thing, eclipses the heart and the motivation of the giver. Church, I'll close with this. I cannot think it more fitting that the God in whom the three in one and one in three exist in perfect harmony, the Trinity, the Godhead, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, I cannot think, I cannot believe it more fitting that the God in, who, in whom unity and diversity exist simultaneously in perfect harmony would have it any other way, would decide to expand and grow his kingdom here on earth any other way rather than creating a diverse but a unified in one spirit and by one spirit and by creating a diverse and unified representation of his body. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that the body of Christ here at New Life Downtown reflects a multitude of gifts, amen? If the church, if Colorado Springs, if all we were to give and whether he hears this or not, don't tell on me. But if all Colorado Springs were to see as an extension of New Life Church or to hear was Glenn Packiam, that would be an incomplete picture. It'd be a good one. But it would still be an incomplete picture of the kingdom of God at work in New Life downtown. If all it was to see was me, it would be an incomplete picture at best of what God has in mind to do through the church, his church, through New Life Downtown. So church, if you would, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? There are some of us who see and know who are well acquainted with those gifts, with the ways in which the Holy Spirit is at work in your lives and our lives and corporately in this church. And some of us struggle to see that. So this morning, Jesus, we come before you asking again that you would make yourself known. We pray just like Moses prayed in the desert. Show us your ways so that we would know you. May the gifts, may the talents, may the blessings, may the actions, may the services never eclipse your heart, your motivation and giving them to us. But Jesus, show us your ways so that we would know you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.